0: JogCast, exploring dwarf planets from a distance, with Indy Leclerc, Ian MacDonald, Mark Perver, Christina Smith and Charlie Walker. The JogCast, March 2015 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the JogCast, I'm Mark and with me today are Charlie and Christina.
1: Hello. Hi.
0: And before we even get started, I'm just going to mention to everybody, there's a solar eclipse on Friday the 20th of March, in the morning if you live in Europe. Sorry, other listeners outside that area. We're going to come back to the eclipse later, but just thought I'd mention it. In the show this time, we interview Dr. Alistair Edge about active galaxy cluster centres, and Dr. Ian MacDonald answers your astronomical questions.
2: But first, before all of that, Mark's going to interview Dr. Bob Watson about cosmic microwave background measurements with Planck and Bicep 2 for this month's JogBite. For this month's job, I have with me
0: Dr. Bob Watson, who works at the University of Manchester and is part of the Planck collaboration. So welcome, Bob.
3: Oh, Hello, welcome to you too.
0: Thank you. We're going to talk about Planck and also BICEP2. And I know you've been working on some of the data from both of these telescopes. So maybe you could first of all tell us a little bit about what Planck and BICEP2 actually are.
3: Okay, well, they're both... um cosmic microwave background experiments, looking at the, the radiation left over from the Big Bang, the earliest electromagnetic radiation you can see in the universe and has frozen into it the the fossils of the all the structure that goes on to make the, the universe that we see today.
0: Wow. So it's sort of our best handle on the nature of the early universe.
3: I yes. Guess. It's, it's sort of a snapshot so you can sort of see how all the, the matter... Is distributed. The universe is much simpler and much easier to understand. So you can figure out the, uh, the initial conditions, and then all the messy stuff—the galaxy formation—starts later. And
0: Planck and BICEP2 were both recording this cosmic microwave background, but not quite in the same way.
3: No, in that the uh, Planck is a, a, a satellite parked out in L2 beyond the orbit of the Moon, and it scans the whole sky whereas uh, BICEP is located in the, the South Pole and makes uh, a very deep, uh, sensitive measurement over about 400 square degrees, whereas with Planck, we, we're over the full uh, celestial sphere.
0: And you're working on the Planck data. So how was it that you came to be involved in BICEP as well?
3: When uh, the, the BICEP results were announced back in uh, March uh, last year, the, the paper was read with great interest and and one of the the obvious things that was lacking in it was was the dust treatment uh, so
0: maybe she's been that that's a, a foreground that yes you sorry to try so and take the, away. The, the,
3: they worked with the available data they had at the time uh, and we knew that the the data our data showed that the dust was more polarized so that their basic assumption of of a fairly low amount of uh, polarization signal from the dust we knew wasn't quite right. Although we, at the time, we weren't entirely positive because we were in the process of reducing that data at the same time. So the Planck data,
0: you were talking about how it sort of showed the structure of the universe. So as well as imagining the sort of spatial structure of it in the sky, you're also having a look at the polarisation, so the actual orientation of the electromagnetic waves as they come towards us.
3: Yes, it, well, that, that's one of the, the sort of next steps in in cosmic microwave yeah. um, observations is to look at this polarization signal so you can get this polarization signal from the very early universe due to scattering of electrons so if there's any sort of intrinsic anisotropy uh, when the the this radiation was emitted you'd see it in the polarization signal but locally we have small dust grains in the magnetic field of the, uh, the of the galaxy which would tend to align with the, the magnetic field and so they they, they sh- uh, emit more one-handed polarization than the other because they, they they're basically like um, uh, spinning plates, as it were, little right. platelets. So they, they they emit more in one direction, one handed polarization than another.
0: And so, is it that they are absorbing the cosmic microwave background and then re-emitting it, or is it they're just they're emitting something that's kind of coming over the top and is in the way?
3: Ah, oh, no, well, so the, the dust are adding, they got their own signal. So they're, they're, the dust is heated by the radiation coming off our own Milky Way galaxy. And then that's being readmitted back, back towards us. So then you were subtracting this off. And
0: why was it that people were getting excited about the polarized signal that may or may not have existed in the cosmic microwave background? This is really at the heart of the whole BICEP announcement, isn't it?
3: Yes, uh, because there was great expectation to see this this signal. So it's a very particular sort of polarised signal. It's called B mode, which is a sort of a, a slightly spirally type pattern. You see, rather than the the standard circles and, and radial patterns you get from scattering off the uh, the, the plasma recombina- recombination. Recombination was when the universe became transparent. What these unlocked was you, you, it was an able Due to see the, the primordial gravitational waves that we expected to to come from inflation, a sort of smoking gun for inflation, so that all the particle physicists and all the uh, cosmologists were really keen to see this signal. And why is it that inflation
0: is so exciting and,
3: yet yeah, elusive? Well, it's so exciting in that it, it sort of explains uh, many things about things we see in, in the cosmology, the cosmic micro-background, which you couldn't explain otherwise. So one of the, the problems is quite how two different sides of the universe know to be at roughly the same temperature, because you know, so these two signals have been propagating where you are at this moment, so you look in two opposite directions, and you see they're practically the same temperature. Uh, so classically, there's no way to explain it, because they're un- unconnected up until that point. What inflation does, it gives you this rapid burst of uh, super-fast expansion, which means that a, a region of space which was connected has become uh, so uh, blown up it sort of pushed it uh, to the other sides of the, the observable universe. So they're now reconnecting again uh, at the present.
0: Inflation is helping us to explain how the universe has sort of got so big. It's and it got so, it's so big, uniform. and so flat.
3: that's the other thing is that we see the universe is very close to being the critical density which is where the sort of negative gravitational uh, energy of the universe exactly matches the the positive left in in matter and kinetic energy so uh, it's quite nice uh, but the problem is you go back in time you get closer and closer to the critical density so you want a mechanism that sort of makes that automatically for you and and inflation does that for you. And so
0: the BICEP2 team they thought that they'd discovered these polarized signals that indicated that inflation was real and it got into the popular media and everything and everyone was saying inflation it happened and um, so how is it with the Planck results that this sort of idea started to kind of unravel
3: well i think people at the time recognized that the this dust foreground well, was was a sort of Achilles' heel of the, their article and a sort of people started making um, analyses where they, it relaxed the dust and it, and that that reduced the uh, the importance of the result we in planck was mainly the uh, Hfi colleagues I work on the on the low frequency side who, who could quantify the dust polarization uh, so they were working already on a, on a paper to to looking into it, precisely this although not on these extremely dust Poor uh, region so they knew that there was sort of polarisation of the dust could be up to ten percent, whereas the the bicep people were working at an assumption of sort of up to to four percent. All these things are done in terms of power spectrum, which is the square of the temperature. That's almost like an order of magnitude, which is about the, the sort of magnitude you, you needed to explain the difference between their foreground model and what's actually seen. And when
0: the bicep two result came out, of course the plank results hadn't come out yet, so officially you had to be silent about it. But did you think when that result came out that there was some doubt about it? Because the way it sort of ended up getting presented at the beginning was, like, sort of quite definite. And it was only later that the doubt seemed to start to creep in. But did you, when you looked at it, think, hmm, hang on, this might be a little bit questionable? Um,
3: Yes, yes, I did. (laughs) I did at the time. Uh, We couldn't say anything for a couple of reasons, in that... uh, The data wasn't yet ready. We could do back-of-envelope calculations that suggested there was a problem, but um, we couldn't really say anything until we actually had got the the, the data to a suitable point where there was no possible doubt.
0: So then you were obviously able to get together with members of the BICEP team. And what was it about Planck? You already alluded to high frequency and low frequency, so that might be the key. But what was it about Planck that enabled you to... Get a handle on what this foreground polarized emission
3: was right well the the main problem with the the bicep uh, approach was that it had one frequency which was one hundred and fifty gigahertz, and the great thing about Planck is it has nine different frequencies, although only uh, five of them are, are polarized. You could actually decompose your foregrounds by a, a process called component separation because you've got so many frequency bands. So the critical one was the dust. We could characterize the dust quite well in terms of frequency. The only problem is, is, it was, was the sensitivity. So we, we could characterize the dust down to, um, quite, quite low levels, uh, and we could measure its, its dependence with frequency and it's also its, its distribution on the sky. Uh, so there was a paper that came out, a couple of months before we started collaborating with the, the, the bicep people. Which was uh, Planck XXX, whereby they established that there was a problem. There wasn't enough sensitivity in Planck alone to to establish clearly in the bicep region there was a there was a problem. So the only way we could do that was by doing a direct comparison of their data with our data.
0: So now it's come to this point where it's possible to explain the polarized emission as being by the foreground dust. Does that make you? feel happy because you got to the bottom of it does it make you feel a bit sad because they haven't quite managed to prove inflation yet
3: Wow, both <laughs> a bit of both. in that uh, having a, a nice strong B mode signal would have been very interesting um, although it was a bit too high to tell the truth It's a bit sad in that, that that we once again we sort of got to a point where we've sort of ruled out an, an interesting thing so we, we're back to the sort of more boring scenario of uh, having to dig a bit deeper. And uh, it's going to be hard work to, to try and push down to, to, to lower B modes.
0: So is there any hint that you could subtract off that polarised foreground and then hope to see the evidence of inflation in the data? Or is that going to be a case of a new experiment or just more time?
3: Uh, another, another experiment. Um, the the BICEP people are working with the, the Keck people uh, who are putting together some quite fantastic sensitive arrays at different frequencies. So the, the, the combined bicep and keck data theoretically, uh, if there wasn't any dust, we'd be able to get down to an R of 0.03 or 0.05, depending on how you approach it. So that's sort of like an order of magnitude better. Okay. But yes, but you, you need equivalent experiments that also disentangle the dust signal. Plank's not quite sensitive enough because it's all sky. So you need uh, other experiments working at sort of slightly higher to get the dust signal and slightly lower to, to get, get a, a cleaner foreground.
0: But now we've got the ability or at least an improved ability to remove that dusty foreground Then that presumably opens the way in the next few years for these experiments to perhaps come up with evidence of inflation then.
3: Oh well, yeah, well that's, that's that's the the current... Main thrust of CMB uh, observations is to try and get that B-mode signal. So sort of plans to get down to the 0.01 level of this ratio of of uh, scalar modes to tensor modes, which is what the, the way this is, this signal is characterized. Brilliant.
0: Well, I wish you very good luck with that, and also I guess with all the other results from Planck's polarization maps that'll be coming out. Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for that, Mark. Now, Indy interviews Dr. Alistair Edge about active galaxy cluster centres.
4: I'm with Dr. Alistair Edge from the University of Durham. Hi, Alistair. Hi. It's Dr. Edge's second interview on the Judcast, so it's great to have you back. Thank you. It's great to be back. <laughs> so, just to kick things off, could you give us the broad strokes of what your
5: research interests are? So, my main research interest is clusters of galaxies the largest gravitationally bound objects that we know and particularly the centers of those clusters of galaxies where we tend to find one massive galaxy largely the the most massive galaxies that we know anywhere in the in the universe happen to sit in the middle of the most massive objects as well, Mm -hmm. the larger cluster around them, and the properties of those central galaxies seem to be dictated by their surroundings. So where you have a cluster of galaxies which is very dense and there's a lot of extended X-ray gas immediately around them, that gas cools relatively quickly in astronomical terms. A billion years is a short time. (laughs) Astronomically, we see a reasonably large amount of gas that was at very hot temperatures at X-ray regime cools down and becomes molecular gas on that timescale, fume, hundred million to billion years, and that cold gas slowly circles its way into the centre of the galaxy changes the properties of that galaxy quite substantially. Normal elliptical galaxy which should just be a lot of old stars we actually see gas and dust immediately around that central galaxy you see dust lanes, you see star formation and you see the effect of gas falling into the central supermassive black hole. Great thing about studying the most massive galaxies is they also have the most massive black holes so that any gas falling in has a much bigger effect, gives you a much more luminous active galactic nucleus in the centre and that activity then throws out energy into the surrounding cluster. We had a problem about 20 years ago where naive x-ray observers which i was one <laughs> were predicting that there will be thousands of solar masses of gas creating stars per year in these systems and at the moment we can account for maybe 10 to 100 solar masses of gas being formed into stars in most systems that was a bit of embarrassment we were standing up at conferences and people were going where's the star <laughs> formation that you were looking for we were going well it might be hidden under the carpet. And now we are in a situation where we have a a reason why gas is not cooling, because the activity that the gas falling into the centre in the supermassive black hole kicks energy back out and stops the rest of the cooling that we were predicting to occur by heating up the gas, by sending a large amount of sound waves out into the surrounding medium and heating that gas up that just about to cool gets warmed up enough that it doesn't cool. So we square the circle of the amount of gas cooling, the amount of gas that we were predicting and actually seeing, and those two are not an order of magnitude, but maybe a factor of two different. Enough systems, we're beginning to see that you will see a few that are above and a few that are below, and that that averages out pretty well. key issue is seeing a large number, not just concentrating on one. And my talk concentrated on one object in particular, which is the central galaxy in the Perseus cluster, which is our most extra luminous cluster in the local universe, but then looked at the analogies that that object has for all the other objects in similar systems, much more distant clusters, and there the odd properties of one galaxy are actually shared by the many in that particular regime.
4: Okay, we'll get to a Perseus cluster in a bit, but first of all, so when this gas actually gets heated up, as it falls back in, what happens to it?
5: A number of things. One, it gets pulled out, so as the AGN activity goes on, it creates radio jets, which expand and buoyantly rise in the hot gas, and with them they drag some of that coal gas, uh, which we see as these long filaments and streamers of optical emission line out from the middle of the galaxy into the outer regions of the cluster. They are one tracer of gas being distributed. Another one, it probably gets heated up and, and evaporates and gets sent back into the hot phase again. And the, the other one is it probably does form some stars, but not as many as we would predict.
4: And when you're studying massive galaxies in the centre of these clusters, what emissions are you looking for? So, I mean, radio, x-ray, but could you maybe go into more detail as to how you observe these guys? Yeah, so
5: I I am one of these astronomers that takes a very wide views to the nature of the universe. I trained in my PhD in x-ray astronomy, Mm -hmm. but I have branched out, so I have gone from radio astronomy to gamma rays, and, and it's only really understanding all the bits in between can we account for most of where the gas goes and how that activity matches to the gas and its surroundings. So we see many of these systems which are very bright, very compact radio galaxies that change substantially over decade timescales. And one of the things about NGC 1275, which I quite enjoy, is that it has gone through a whole cycle of its activity over my lifetime. Over the past 50 years, it started off Rising in activity in the mid 80s, it was really bright, and then in early 90s, it just stopped its activity for about 15 years, and then just in the early 2000s, it started increasing in its activity again, which we could see in the uh, millimetre regime and the gamma ray regime. Just now, it's beginning to get close to where it was in terms of its peak activity in the 80s when I was a teenager.
4: (laughs) So, actually, can we take a look at this sort of cycle in a bit more detail? What causes the sort of the rise and the fall in activity? And, and how do various wavelengths of radiation correlate to each other in terms of how the activity changes?
5: So how does the activity change is probably just weather. You are dealing with gas falling into a black hole, which is several billion solar masses in size, into a region a few tens of Schwarzschild radius, so the, the, the limiting size of the black hole. How that gas falls into the centre is a tricky problem to understand theoretically and observationally, we don't know that much about it, but it probably has a slight oscillation in the gas as it falls in. So any disk will not be completely symmetric and will have a slight wobble to it, and that wobble timescale is of the order of decades this precession of the disk, and the motion of gas through that disk will follow that sort of timescale. Okay. So seeing activity change on decade timescales is roughly what we're expecting if gas is falling in that final mile into the centre of the system. It takes many, many hundreds of millions of years for it to fall in, but once it's got there, the variation in that falling in will be in the order of 10 to 50 years.
4: Right, so essentially just the more gas that's falling in that final stage, the more active it is and vice yes. versa. Yes,
5: so the amount of material that gets into that final part depends on many different things, how much yeah. gas is a little bit further out. Most of these systems will have a, a reasonably large amount of gas coming in gradually, so it'll have a fairly steady stream of gas falling in, but in some cases we'll have a large amount of gas that will fall in all of at once and that gas will get in each other's way you'll get a lot of activity and you have much more emission from the very centre in a much denser gas immediately around and you have what we would then see as a much more bright core as a quasar, which we see in a few systems, but very rarely. And there appears to be an episodic cycle of range of activity most of it is relatively quiescent which is what we see but every now and again you get a thunderstorm large amount of gas falls in and you get a lot more activity and things change in terms of the luminosity and the relative amount of emission that you see at different Mm -hmm. wavelengths most of the time we see a bit of radio emission a little bit of x-ray and a bit of optical if you start throwing lots of gas into the center you get much less radio in comparison Mm -hmm. a lot more optical and a lot more ultraviolet and x-ray produce a much brighter, much more intense active source in the centre, which has a big effect on the immediate surroundings. Once that gas supply has dropped, can't sustain that very long, particularly when it's very active and the gas is affected by that really bright source in the centre. Then you start going back to the lower level of activity we see in most systems. And virtually everything where we have a a reasonable amount of gas supply in the centre, we see a radio source at some level of activity. There are very few systems where we're expecting there to be gas supply and there's nothing in the beating heart in the centre of the galaxy.
4: Basically a sort of cycle, so you've given a talk and focusing on one particular object in the yep. in the Perseus cluster. So do we see this sort of cycle, this variability, periodic variability almost, other massive clusters?
5: Yes, in the systems that we have looked at long enough I over the last 10 years, yep. we see for the brighter objects a similar level of activity. Changes of a few tens of percent to maybe a factor of two over a decade in terms of its change in radio flux. We also see changes in the x-ray properties of the nucleus that we see directly in x-ray imaging. Again, that x-ray emission, gamma ray emission, comes from the very centre where it's most energetic. The radio and the optical will come from slightly larger regions. So we tend to see much more activity on short time scales from the gamma rays and the x-rays and then longer time scale variations in the submillimeter far infrared and, and radio but they are all correlated together globally yeah but instantaneously you tend to get increasing the brightness in the gamma rays and that works its way through slowly trickles down to lower and lower frequencies Frequency. and through the optical far infrared and radio
4: okay so now sort of looking at what is it, ngc 1275 mm-hmm. yes, yes. <laughs> towards the beginning of your talk you, you started off and you're saying well it's Got weird properties compared yes, to compared it, is, the it is a and,
5: weird galaxy for what we usually assume is yeah. a giant elliptical galaxy. so most galaxies we un- we see out there in the in the universe are either spiral galaxies so have a reasonable amount of gas within them, like our own Milky Way. They form stars reasonably quiescently, you see spiral arms, you see giant molecular clouds forming stars, and they are slowly evolving, and we also see large elliptical galaxies which have a lot of old stars. Very little, if any, star formation and they are just an old stellar population where the stars formed maybe eight or twelve giga years ago and have just stopped. So yeah, they're retirement homes for for stars. There's nothing new and active, there's no crash and and there are no schools for the stars. They're just the old versions of the stars there in one relatively uniform population of, of relatively old main sequence stars like our own. Sure. But in these systems that I've been looking at, you see a lot of contamination from additional sources of gas, dust, and subsequent star formation, which comes in in addition to what we see from the, the old stellar population. So you see evidence of a frosting of recent star formation and intermediate star formation of young star clusters that we see directly from HST imaging that clearly formed stars in the last few hundred million years and are fading. And we see this in many other galaxies as well. So it isn't just one. Mm. It's a much more common effect that we see in many objects. And the common association with those is they are all in clusters where there's a lot of very hot gas cooling very rapidly immediately around the galaxy. So we can use X-ray astronomy to pinpoint the regions where that galaxy will be affected And that's a very effective uh, method of selection. If you look in X-ray surveys, X-ray pointed observations of a set of clusters, it's almost one-to-one. From the X-ray observations, you can pinpoint this cluster will have a bright galaxy which has some star formation in it. And looking at the X-rays for another one, where the amount of X-rays immediately around the central galaxy is a little bit higher, the cooling time, the amount of time it takes for the gas to cool, it's a little bit longer, it will not be forming stars. It's almost a switch at just one level of of these X-rays. X-ray observations appears to make a big difference to the properties in X-ray into the optical, which is relatively rare. We tend to see things where, on the whole, one property affects the other with a big scatter between them. This one is almost exactly a straight line border between the two with a demarcation that almost 100% of objects on one side of the border are one type, mm. and the other side of the border, they're almost exclusively old stellar populations with no young stars at all.
4: Just for our listeners who probably won't be that familiar with sort of the cooling mechanism classes, so could you maybe explain that a little bit?
5: I actually deal with this in my fourth year lecture course. Excellent. So within a cluster of galaxies, you have galaxies. You have dark matter, and held between the galaxies and heated up by the great gravitational potential of the dark matter is diffuse gas. Hydrogen, a lot of other gases, and some iron and other material which has been expelled from the individual galaxies through supernova explosions out. And we see this hot gas, which is relatively diffuse. Within any metre cubed, there are probably a dozen atoms, mainly hydrogen, but some other uh, elements. Very diffuse, but... Each individual atom will occasionally pass by each other and produce an X-ray where one accelerates the other, which is called Bremsstrahlung emission. You have a big enough volume of this. The gas motion is its heat, its temperature, and as they interact with each other, they lose a little bit of energy each time they produce an X-ray, so that gas slowly cools down by each atom encountering another one and slowing each other down. So after a while, you do this long enough, over billion years, few billion years, all of that gas will lose its uh, rapid motion, cool down, and hydrogen will find an an electron and form atomic hydrogen. When it finds atomic hydrogen, it will form molecular hydrogen as it interacts with dust particles and create cold molecular gas, which is what then forms stars.
4: I see. So, so going back briefly to what you were saying, essentially, if there's a certain amount of X-rays coming out of a cluster, then it has this sort of these properties of having star formation and yep. a little bit of what you call this frosting of new stars, it and, just, and yes. if you cross a the threshold, then basically it's just your run-of-the-mill elliptical sort of, yes. more or less. Yes, so if,
5: you, if it's just not quite cooling enough, no gas makes it through, and, it, and no gas makes it to the centre. But you get below that threshold, you just hit a level where gas does cool, and sufficient amount of it gets to the centre and causes activity both in terms of star formation and gas finally spiralling into the central supermassive black hole and causing it to become active and shining directly as as gas gets heated up and falls into the black hole.
4: Great. So, I mean, in the next few years you'll be monitoring, well, the Perseus galaxy quite closely uh, for increased activity.
5: (laughs) So, actually, I don't need to do most of it (laughs) because most of it is actually being done by matter of course so yeah you know, sure things yeah. like ngc 1275 which is a very bright source mm-hmm. is being monitored by e-merlin once a week at least because it's one of the bright sources that is a, a phase and flux calibrator mm-hmm. at lower frequencies so it's an object which is studied for other reasons frequently so a lot of the multi wavelength monitoring of this object is is done for free brilliant I don't even need to worry too much about that. Uh, And things like gamma-ray observations are done routinely. There's a NASA satellite called Fermi, Mm -hmm. which for the last seven years has been monitoring the gamma-ray sky, and virtually every week, and and more recently, virtually every day, detects the NGC-1275 in gamma rays individually, and it flares and, and flashes every now and again. And that flaring and flashing has a corresponding effect on its optical brightness as well, and people are optically monitoring this object. And I've I've monitored it with our small 12 and 14-inch telescopes we have for teaching oh, on the roof yeah. of the physics department in Durham in the great many clear patches we get in the northeast <laughs> weather. And I've actually been monitoring it on, on and off for the last couple of years. And you do see, from month to month, clear variations in the optical brightness of the nuclear component right in the centre of the object
4: fantastic so it's still increasing for now and it is still still increasing
5: and uh, as i paid off my final slide it started its activity when i was born reached its maximum activity in its last episode just as i started my astronomical career and finished my phd and i'm hoping before i retire <laughs> in a certain number of years, that it will reach the high level of activity that it did in the late 70s and early 80s, so we can really understand, you know, and, and get a really good handle on what the nature of that activity is, as it goes into really large amount of gas falling into the centre, get the fantastic suite of instruments that we have yeah. coming up it may not be here to observe it with alma but there are a number of other objects of similar properties that we can observe with alma but e-merlin and uh, the event horizon telescope where very high resolution high frequency uh, resolution we can actually start looking at the real dynamics of, of the emission right at the center of the supermassive black hole on the event horizon scales that to me is very exciting
4: That'd be great, yeah. Thanks for that very interesting chat about Galaxy Clusters. Fun and fun, yeah. um, hopefully see you on the Jodcast for a third interview sometime in the future.
5: <laughs> I've got to catch up with Crystalline and Thought somehow. <laughs> Thank Thanks you. for that,
0: Thanks for that, Indy. Now it's time for that part of the show where we fit in everything we can't fit in anywhere else. It's the odds and ends. And coming back to my current obsession with the solar eclipse, Charlie, can you start us off?
2: Yeah, so you listeners will probably know by now that we do have a solar eclipse coming. It's visible in parts of the Northern Hemisphere, including all of Europe, on Friday, March the 20th, Uh, and you'd have heard a lot about that if you listened to last episode's Night Sky segment. It's definitely worth a reminder though, it's going to be, in the UK at least, the most notable eclipse since the summer of 1999. So, story time. Guys, do you remember where you were in the summer of 1999?
1: I do. Yeah, me too.
0: 1999, that was a good year, and I was here in Manchester. And it was sunny during the eclipse, which was a nice change. I mean, it was August, so that's to be expected perhaps, but it wasn't sunny all over the country. We had about 90% coverage, and it did start to go a little bit dark. I remember that one, quite dusky. Animals started to go to bed and things.
2: No, owls started hooting. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember any owls,
0: but I definitely remember birds roosting and sort of twittering in the trees and things like that. And um, I had my eclipse glasses out, and I was looking at it. And it was fascinating, and then that caused me then to go seven years later, nearly, to Turkey to go and see a Total one as well.
2: So you're a file? Apparently. <laughs> that is uh, that is what apparently people who hunt for
0: Total Eclipses are called. Well, I did see the eclipse. I did love it. And I would like to go and see another one, Total. In fact, I kind of wish I was going to the Faroe Isles, where it's happening in yeah, Total this in time. that's in the North Atlantic? It's uh, between Scotland and Iceland. Mm-hmm. So it's not far away, but it's also not very big. I, mean, I think it's going to be quite crowded somehow. I'm thinking about two years' time, USA. The track of totality is going to run across much of the US, so I think um, I might book a holiday there. So, Christina, you remember it?
1: Yes, I do. Um, I was 11, I think, at the time, and I was on holiday on a farm in Northumberland. And I also had my little sunglasses, special solar eclipse glasses that I put on, and I sat outside for a very long time <laughs> looking at the sun, earth, looking as the moon slowly passed in front of the sun. It's it was really slow. It wasn't total up there. Um, it was very definitely partial, but it was still really good, and it still got quite dark. Um, I very distinctly remember it all going dark, and like you said, the birds beginning to roost and that kind of thing.
0: We should m- mention don't wear normal sunglasses as well. eclipse classes are really special. They block out virtually everything except for a little bit of sunlight.
2: Yeah, if you look at them in a room, you can see nothing at all.
0: So, Charlie, that's two of us. We saw the 99 eclipse. What about you? Uh,
2: Sadly, I missed it. So, I was actually on holiday at the time. We were in Mallorca, and that is where it was a total eclipse. And I hear it was really good. Uh, (laughs) I was quite small. I was seven, and I was ill, and I was asleep in bed. (laughs) And I missed it, totally. So I'm mega excited about this one because, uh, well, I haven't seen one before.
0: We're going to have stuff at Jodrell Bank as well. So at the Discovery Centre, we'll be having some science shows in the next couple of weeks related to the eclipse. But on the actual day, unfortunately, at least in the morning, you won't be able to come in because there's going to be Stargazing Live and I think BBC Breakfast filming there. So you can't be with us for that in person but you can get eclipse glasses and we're selling them at the shop and we've sold thousands and thousands of pairs of eclipse glasses and you probably still get hold of some if you're listening to this right after the show comes out
2: it's definitely definitely going to be worth watching here in manchester the moon's going to cover about 85 percent of the sun but wherever you are i'm going to put a link online that will show you how good the coverage is and it even has instructions for building your own pinhole projector to watch the eclipse safely if you want to. that's cool
0: I've also been told that if you have a colander with small holes in it, or like a sieve, <clears throat> then when the sun is almost covered, you may be able to use each hole as a little pinhole projector. I mean, it's, it's a little, little bit wider, but you might be able to get sort of multiple images of the eclipsed sun. So it'd be like a disco ball in the room? Yeah. So give that a go if cool. you want. Yeah. Going off in the other direction, uh, you won't see an eclipse if you are on Ceres, the asteroid, but you might see NASA's Dawn spacecraft, which is now orbiting it. Dawn is an unmanned mission which previously went to the asteroid Vesta in the asteroid belt, which is between Mars and Jupiter. And then after spending 14 months there, it then went on a two and a half year journey and it's now got to the largest asteroid Ceres. And it means that quite quietly, without much fanfare, we are now as humans, explorers of the first of the dwarf planets.
1: Yay! <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and the reason for that, you can see on the pictures that Dawn sent back, it's because Ceres is nice and round like a ball, and that's what qualifies as a dwarf planet, as well as being an asteroid. Although it is quite significantly lumpy if you look at the picture so gravity when things get big enough pull them into spherical shapes and you have to be quite spherical well very spherical really to be a dwarf planet apparently Ceres makes it in
2: so it looks like a golf ball instead of a potato
0: yes yeah and it is quite pockmarked, like a golf ball as well like our other favorite dwarf planet Pluto um Ceres was classed as a planet for about 50 years in the 1800s and then it had the same problem basically that Pluto's got now which is that People started to find other objects around it, and it got demoted. But it's still very exciting because it's sort of like a little relic of our old solar system, and it's sometimes called something like a planetesimal. So, like the sort of little chunk of rock that could have merged to form a planet, like the ones we have and and live on. In one case, but it, it, that never happened, and so it's not quite a sort of differentiated as most planets so with like a, maybe like the Earth's got the molten iron core and the mantle and so on, but Ceres apparently is thought to have a rocky core and then some ice and more rock on the top. Dawn is going to have a close look at that it's going to do infrared mapping and spectrometry so it's going to be able to learn more about what the surface is made of and maybe a little bit about what's underneath it and they're particularly interested in finding out whether it's got frozen water anywhere on it
1: do they think it's likely that they'll find it and would it be under the surface?
0: I don't know, but they have been talking about two bright spots that have been seen by dawn already in a crater, which are something shiny. And they could possibly be a place where ice has been exposed from underneath by, by a meteorite impact. And they, I think they are expecting it probably to be buried. But it's exciting. I'm going to get some good pictures and good information and there's a movie as well of Dawn, which is gradually going to spiral into a lower and lower orbit. And it's going to go as low as about 400 kilometres above the surface as well.
2: And it will stay at Ceres. It's gone there to die. I think it's gone there to do some work and then possibly retire. retire. Yeah. <laughs> I
0: don't I don't think it's going anywhere else. And just by comparison, Ceres is about 950 kilometres across. And Earth is about 12,800 kilometres across. So it's a lot smaller, a lot smaller even than the moon.
1: While well, staying on the space exploration theme, um, I've got some news about NASA's space launch system. There have been some developments in that. So this is the, the heavy lift rocket, which they're planning to launch Orion with, which is the human spaceflight capsule. And they've been testing the booster rockets for the space launch system. And this is actually the largest and most powerful booster rocket so far to date, which is pretty awesome. And they ran the test on the 11th of March, And the booster burned for two minutes, which is the length of time it would burn for if it was attached to the rocket blasting off into space. In that time, it produced 3.6 million pounds of thrust, which is roughly equivalent to 16 million newtons of force. It was a successful test. And this is the first of two tests. So these booster rockets have to undergo a high temperature test, which is at about 32 degrees Celsius or 90 degrees Fahrenheit. And then there's a cold temperature test, um, which is about 40 degrees Fahrenheit, which is a little bit above zero. And during the test, the actual temperature inside the rocket booster hit 5,600 degrees, and I believe that's degrees Fahrenheit.
0: And is that more powerful than what launched the, the Saturn V moon rockets?
1: Uh, yeah, I believe it is the most powerful rocket booster so far to date. Wow.
0: Um, Saturn V was the biggest rocket, so I guess the most powerful boosters until now, apparently. And that's been over 40 years. So
1: Yeah, well, these aren't uh, the only engines that are going to be powering the, um, the heavy lift rocket. It's going to have two of these booster rockets and uh, four RS-25 main engines. And those are going to be the engines that power the SLS into deep space.
0: Are gonna be sending people to Mars?
1: Hopefully. The plan for the Orion multi purpose crew vehicle is to carry people. And I believe the plan is to go to potentially asteroids or Mars or Ceres. Potentially series, yeah. There's
0: <laughs> already uh, Dawn waiting
1: there. So, yeah. Yeah. Send a little recon for them. He said, Hey guys, come over here. It's pretty cool out here. Well, if
0: there was water, people will be into getting hold of that for longer space missions as well.
1: It's pretty exciting. Space exploration, in my opinion.
0: (laughs) Yes, I'm glad NASA is doing this stuff. It's not all um, private companies.
1: I mean, these rockets are absolutely huge. It's 177 feet long, so this thing's absolutely enormous. And these are just one of the two boosters that go on the rocket. Massive.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, now to a man who was recently heated to 40 degrees Celsius, although he really shouldn't have been. Your astronomical questions are answered by a slightly ailing Dr. Ian MacDonald. Our first question this month comes from Peter Carr, who says, Pulsars are often described as being like lighthouses, producing a beam of radiation that sweeps around as the star rotates. This implies that the beam is produced from a spot on the equator of the star. Is that correct? What mechanism is thought to produce the
6: beam? A pulsar is the dead heart of a star. It's produced in a supernova through a combination of gravity and compression from the nuclear explosion that happens around it. It's so dense that the atoms themselves have squashed together to become a city-sized ball of mostly neutrons, called neutron star, and they're the densest things that we've observed, the darned black holes. And when you try and squash something that large, like the core of a star, into something very small, like a pulsar, strange things happen. Basic physics tells us that certain things are conserved, you can't get rid of them. And these things include the star's angular momentum and its magnetic field. So when you squash it down, it spins faster, and it gets more strongly magnetised. A star that was spinning maybe only once a year originally, or perhaps even slower, will end up rotating many times a second. And the magnetic field, which on the Sun is only barely enough to influence life here on Earth, becomes billions of times more powerful. This magnetic field is strong enough to produce a dynamo, which takes any remaining electrons and protons left on the surface of a neutron star, and rip them off into space, firing them off at speeds close to the speed of light. This particle ejection is the main way that neutron stars slow down, These charged particles, we think, interact with magnetic field lines and spiral around them. As they spiral, they slowly lose energy by giving off emission all over the electromagnetic spectrum. Radio waves in particular can be very strong. And this is the emission that we see from Earth, as being continually produced by the pulsar. But why is it pulsed? If you have a look at a relatively simple magnetic field, like the Earth's, you'll see it isn't aligned with our rotation axis. The magnetic pole and the true pole aren't in the same place. If you were to stand on the magnetic pole and fire a laser into space, your laser would trace a circle amongst the constellations as the Earth rotated. Most of the sky is never covered by the laser beam, but if it happened to hit some distant world, and someone were on there looking back at us, they'd see a pulse of laser light every time the Earth turned, every 23 hours and 56 minutes. We think a very similar thing is happening on the pulsar, except we're the ones looking at it, and it's firing radio-emitting charged particles from its magnetic poles rather than a laser beam. The magnetic axis isn't on the equator, and it's not aligned with the true pole of the neutron star. It emerges from some pseudo-random spot on the neutron star. The beam still traces a circle around its own sky every time the pulsar rotates, and we only see the neutron star as a pulsar if that beam hits the Earth. Most neutron stars are undetectable. So there you have it. Neutron stars send out a radar-like beam of radio waves from their magnetic poles. And if we're lucky, we happen to be underneath that beam and we can see a pulsar.
0: The second question is from Rob Peck, who says, Professor Paul Crowther mentioned that there was no theoretical limit as to how big a massive star may become. It made me wonder about the environment at the centre of such massive stars. How large would a star need to be before a black hole was created at its core?
6: Really massive stars are really strange places. There's no theoretical limit as to how a bigger star can become, but there are very definite limits as to how a bigger star can remain stable. The biggest stars never really finish forming by the time they die. The biggest star we know of in our galaxy is probably Eta Carinae, which began as a star of around 150 to 180 times the sun's mass. Now it's probably only about 110 times the sun's mass because it's lost so much mass in the catastrophic explosions, the biggest of which may have been the 19th century. A bigger star is probably the romantically named... R136A1, in the Large Magellanic Cloud. It might be slightly larger, tipping the scales to around 265 solar masses, but this is probably just about the largest star we're likely to see today. And the reason for that is down to the conditions at the centre of the star. Stars support themselves because the photons of light produced by thermonuclear reactions at the centre have enough pressure to counteract the enormous pull of the star's gravity. But when you make the stars too big, you run into problems with this radiation pressure support. The energy production of the Sun ticks over very gently. It produces less heat per cubic metre than a person. The quote of the day on this one probably has to go to Wikipedia, which says that the solar centre produces about the same energy density as an active compost heap. However, unlike a compost heap, most of that energy is in X-ray photons, with typical energies of about 4 kiloelectron volts. However, if you beef up a star to about 100 solar masses, you start to encounter problems. Instead of X-rays, gamma rays are produced in the centre of the star. And these gamma rays can interact with the atomic nuclei and loose electrons so strongly that they spontaneously produce new pairs of particles, electrons and positrons. A lot of the gamma rays' energy is taken away in these particles, and the radiation pressure then can't support the star anymore. The star collapses, then explodes, in what's called a pair-instability supernova. And this occurs in such a way that it leaves no remnant behind, not even a black hole these pen stability supernovae could have been a very good way of getting a lot of heavy elements like iron and cobalt out into the cosmos early in the universe's history. If you make a star even bigger, more than about 250 solar masses, the thermal gamma rays have enough energy to smash apart the atomic nuclei, meaning that their energy never makes it out of the core of the star. Since there's no radiation to support the gravity against the star, it simply collapses under its own weight into a sizable black hole. It's possible that stars like these seeded the supermassive black holes that now reside in the centre of all large galaxies. So while there may be no theoretical limit as to how big stars become, once you get above beyond maybe a 100 times the mass of the Sun, practical limit is that stars will destroy themselves before they can fully form.
0: The third question is from John Brooks, and he says, Would the top and bottom of a black hole look similar? Or is a black hole not a sphere but maybe coin-shaped?
6: That's a really good question, and it caused me to think a bit. But the answer seems to be that it comes down to whether your black holes are rotating or not. As far as we can tell, a black hole is a singularity. They've been described as where God divided by zero. Apparently nature abhors a complete breakdown of the laws of physics, so the ugly side of the singularity is shielded from us by the event horizon. If you have a Schwarzschild black hole, that's non rotating one, it simply sits as a point in space surrounded by its event horizon. You'd see the same thing from every direction, which is simply a hole in space, surrounded by the distorted, gravitationally-lensed images of the stars behind it. The black hole itself is just a point, and the event horizon is just a featureless sphere. There's no top, there's no bottom. It just looks the same. On the other hand, if you have a rotating black hole, what's referred to as a Kerr black hole, then you can have a much more interesting scenario. A rotating massive object drags the space-time continuum around it. It's a bit like twisting a fork in a checkered tablecloth. A rotating black hole will actually drag spacetime outside its event horizon faster than the speed of light, in a region known as the ergosphere. Matter and light can still pass through this ergosphere without being swallowed by the black hole, but only as long as it's travelling in the same direction as the black hole spins. And it will be bent on the way. Looking from the top or bottom of a spinning black hole, and you'll see the familiar Einstein ring as background stars are stretched out into arcs. Except that these distorted images will also be twisted around the black hole forming a spiral, The view from the equator is even more interesting, as the black hole takes on the kidney bean shape as light passing through the approaching side of the ergosphere is allowed through, but light on the receding side is blocked. Surprisingly, visual models of rotating black holes were only made very recently, and that's mainly thanks to the film Interstellar. This film accurately depicts a spinning black hole which is capturing matter via an accretion disk, and that accretion disk is seen to warp into unusual shapes by the black hole's spin. Rather than describe the peculiar appearance of this warped accretion disk, it's probably best that you see it for yourself. In the show notes, we've linked to a couple of videos which show the black hole model from Interstellar and how it was put together. They're really worth watching if you have a spare six minutes.
0: Lastly, Philippe Leriche says, Since gravitational waves are extremely difficult to detect, I'm wondering just how much energy they might carry. If our eyes were as sensitive to gravitational radiation as they are to light, how bright would gravitational waves be?
6: They'd be surprisingly bright. The reason they're difficult to detect is because gravity only barely acts with the matter compared to the electromagnetic force that allows us to see. Now, you've experienced that if you've ever used a small magnet to lift something against the gravitational pull of the entire Earth. But gravity isn't a force to be trifled with. Its strength lies in the fact that it's the only fundamental force that can't be negative. And while very little of the universe has a perceptible charge, everything with mass exerts gravity. Which means there's a lot of gravity floating around in the universe compared to a small amount of light. So how strong is a gravitational wave? Since we haven't detected any yet, that's a hard thing to say for sure, but one of the best tests of gravitational radiation we have is the double pulsar, the orbit of which spirals in by 76.5 microseconds per year, emitting 7 trillion terawatts of energy as it does so. That's about 2% of the Sun's total output as gravitational waves. The double pulsar is about 6,400 parsecs away, so we'd see that as a rather faint 19th magnitude star. However, the double pulsar will continue to get brighter in gravitational waves for another 300 million years or so. It's hard to find an accurate estimate of what the peak flux would be. The best answer I've found suggests that they could be up to 10 billion times stronger, making them, in comparative terms, as bright as the planet Venus, at a bolometric magnitude of minus 4. Unfortunately, the problem with visualising gravitational waves is that our eyes are very well tuned to a small frequency range. The gravitational waves are produced with a frequency equal to the two bodies' orbits, even at the point of merger, these gravitational waves will all be of a longer frequency than any radio waves detectable from Earth. So to any earthly observer, we'd still see nothing.
0: Thanks for that, Ian. And now, on to the feedback. No post this episode, but by email. John got in touch, and he commented that he thought we were removing a few too many of the breaths and pauses from the interviews that we have on the JOGcast. Um So it's not actually an automatic function that does that, it is our editors and we often have new editors so they have to find their feet a little bit so bear with us if the sound quality is not absolutely perfect we do care about the sound quality a lot i am one of those
2: new editors we'll keep improving
0: (laughs) we'll be diligent it's mainly just about um those natural sort of pauses in sentences that that are sometimes perhaps a few too many of them are removed but thank you for pointing that out because we like it when people are listening carefully
1: and on Facebook, um, we've had a message from Larry Rakos who said, I love the podcast and congratulations on your 200th show. I can't quite believe that we have hit 200. And in fact, 201, I guess, now.
2: Yep. <laughs> Amazing.
1: <laughs> um, but I guess the Job Cast has me going for quite some time. So it's a lot of back episodes if you wanted to start from the very beginning.
2: People have done it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and uh, thanks for all the likes and shares on Facebook.
2: And thanks for all the tweets. We've had a few more happy 200th anniversary podcasts. And Bill Keck tweets in saying, pulsars are more accurate than atomic clocks. The JOGcast has been beating Kinder Surprises since 2006. (laughs) (laughs) And we've had a few other conversations over Twitter. Neutrino Jones has been uh, complimenting the night sky section of the JOGcast. And Lauren Thompson says she loves stargazing, though it usually gets confined to holidays. Yes,
0: Neutrino Jones said, I rarely get out and look at the stars, but likes the night sky section. I was wondering if that's because Neutrino Jones is only looking at neutrinos. And if you're detecting neutrinos, your night sky section is only going to consist of about one interacting neutrino in your detector per month.
2: Month one, one neutrino. (laughs) (laughs) Month two,
0: one neutrino. So I'm going to suggest... Just, you know, switching to photons. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net.
1: On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast.
0: On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On
2: YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast.
1: On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast.
2: And don't forget that you can send us post the addresses on the website. And
0: that's the end of the show. So it only remains to say thank you to Alistair Edge and Bob Watson for the interviews. The editors were Ben Shaw, Monique Henson, Mark Perver, and Charlie Walker, and the producer was Mark Perver. So until next time, John. on. on.